0: We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. All right. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Into the Fray. My name's Aaron, and I've named this podcast Into the Fray because that is exactly where I intend to take you. Uh, I'm convinced that we're coming up pretty fast on a very sharp fork in the road. And I'm tired of trying to convince sleeping people that the dumpster fire I'm warning them about is real. And being ignored even when I can show them video of actual dumpster fires in the middle of actual riots. In some cases being pushed toward actual gas stations. So I'm turning here. If you've been shaken awake by recent events and you're trying to catch up, or maybe you've kept up but you know that there's more to this madness, you're in the right place. I'm going to spend a fair bit of time on this podcast covering relevant news, but today I wanted to start with something that I think will help you understand the nonsensical framing that the left, especially the rioters, are using, that they believe justifies their actions. So this kind of goes back to European versus American political lenses. And don't hit the snooze button, this is actually really important, and I think by the time I'm done, you're going to have a whole new perspective On a lot of the things that these writers are saying and what they're doing. Uh, So to understand the left, you have to understand the difference between left and right in Europe versus left and right in the United States. They're different. You constantly hear the left accusing people on the right of being fascists, but what does that mean? Right? We don't really see a lot of actual fascism in the United States. Fascism is something that's typically assigned specifically to The Axis nations, right? Germany and Italy, specifically under Hitler and Mussolini, right? First, you have to understand that communism and its warm-up act, socialism, have existed for thousands of years. The Spartans way back in ancient Greece practiced it. Marx didn't invent it. He didn't even rediscover it. He studied it and waxed philosophical about it at a time when Europe was desperate for relief from authoritarian regimes. Marx is the father of modern communism, but it's a broken idea that's been utilized to seize and maintain power for a long, long time. To understand what the leftist writers are on about, you have to understand the foundation of modern European politics. Left and right came from the French Revolution era, where the liberals and the conservatives physically sat on opposite sides of the National Assembly. The liberals wanted to take power from the king and give it to the people. Ultimately, you see they seized that power and created a communist government in Paris that didn't last very long, thankfully. Conservatives in the French Revolution supported the power of the king and his bureaucracy. They wanted to keep things in place. In European politics, left versus right is essentially Marxist versus authoritarian, or in some cases fascist. In the United States, left versus right is Marxist versus constitutionalist. It's very different. Part of this comes from how politics evolved on the two continents, okay? So in Europe, the established power structure was authoritarian. For thousands of years, they had kings and dictators. Political power was wielded by a ruling elite and their bureaucracies, and the people were subjected to it. In some cases, there were representative assemblies, but in most of those cases, they were token bodies who had little to no real political influence. Marxism rose up purportedly... As a people's movement to take power from the ruling elite and give it to the people. The primary form of this transition was violent revolution and coup. Unfortunately, as was thoroughly demonstrated through the 20th century, all Marxism really did was create a different ruling elite and bureaucracy with all the same atrocities against its people. The United States was different. We started with the Constitution, we exited a monarchy, and then transferred power to the people, not via collectivism but by a system of representation, fortified against abuse by checks and balances. It's an entirely different paradigm. Unlike Europe, where the people struggled against authoritarianism for a voice, the American people started out with a voice. Dissent took a totally different form. The enemy of the Constitution was the supremacy movement. The Democrat left used the idea that white Americans were a superior species to drive the natives from their land and enslave the black race, all in an effort to circumvent the Constitution and a mass power. Jackson used Manifest Destiny to push the narrative. Wilson used Darwinism to the same end. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, Marxism began to creep into American culture. The graduated income tax and the myriad social programs of Woodrow Wilson's New Freedom, FDR's New Deal, and LBJ's Great Society were all taken from Marx's playbook. When the civil rights movement killed classical supremacy, The Democrat left fully embraced socialism and paired it with identity politics, which is just a new form of supremacy movement. So let's bring this back to the modern American left. The Democrats, their propaganda arm, the media, and their militant arm, Antifa, BLM. They don't treat American politics as American politics. The ideology of the modern left was imported from Europe, and that's the lens through which they view politics. They believe that their opponents are their opposite. They're Marxist, therefore their opponents are fascists. They're identitarian, therefore anyone who's not is racist. This is how they conflate European right and American right. They equate constitutionalism with fascism, and equality under the law with racism. This is how they can accuse decent, responsible Americans of being racist and fascist with a straight face. This is also how they conflate constitutionalists with Nazis. To them, anyone on the right is European right, even those who are American right. Those who are labeled far-right or alt-right, the neo-Nazis and their ilk, are communist socialists. The so-called alt-right is a misnomer. It's built as an alternative right, or an alternative to the right, but the only alternative is left. The Nazis were and are National Socialists. Officially, they were the National Socialist German Workers' Party. They're not far right. They're far left. Two insurmountable differences divide the communists and the Nazis. One, Nazis are nationalist, we're Marxist or globalist. And two, Nazis believe in white supremacy, while at least here in America, the left espouses minority supremacy. However, if you look at who on the left is espousing minority supremacy to garner power, you find they're also white, making them white supremacists. Both communists and Nazis want to use Marxism to seize and maintain control, and they're both identity supremacists. They're nothing more than two factions of the left infighting for dominance. America's right is constitutional. The further right you go, the more constitutional you get. These are the people who stand for the value of human life, who defend the right of people to have ideas they disagree with, who demand due process and for all people to have equal standing before the law. These are the people who know that there are certain rights which are inherent in us, that those rights are not granted by the government, but must be protected and respected by it. We are not lumped in with, nor burdened by, Nazis, white nationalists, or any other group that aims to subvert rights and liberties. And if we've learned anything from this election cycle, it's that the right is not a monolith identity group. The madness that has gripped our nation has also revealed that decent people from all races and all walks of life are ready to stand up and be counted in support of our constitutional republic. Now, I want to play a clip for you. Um, this is of journalist Elijah Schaefer, and he's being attacked by a mob. And I want you to listen to why. <laughs> <laughs> this guy right here is a racist! He's a white supremacist and he's no, doxing people! All right, so that got spicy fast. This is just one clip. Elijah Schaefer has been attacked multiple times. Drew Hernandez was attacked just a couple of days later. Andy No, a little while ago, was hospitalized with a brain bleed when they came after him. Uh, Lisa Barbonis and Brittany Rose were attacked on the same day. Why attack a journalist who's just filming events? The writers have answered this question themselves. They don't want their crimes and their faces known. This is why they hide their faces, this is why they dress alike, this is why they bring umbrellas. They don't want to be seen, they don't want to be identified, they don't want people to know what they're doing. They're seeking the same level of anonymity to protect them from the consequences of their actions that they're accustomed to having online. Why dehumanize a journalist? Journalists document their crimes. The narrative that they're fighting fascism or defending minorities is destroyed when everyday people see them throw paint on elderly ladies or smash a Hispanic bodega. These writers have to destroy anything that threatens their narrative or exposes them to prosecution for their crimes. However, some part of human nature still requires justification for their violence, no matter how flimsy that justification is. Even the Nazis, at the height of their atrocities, still had to come up with justifications to convince their executioners to carry out those horrendous deeds. Today, they accuse journalists of being racist and white supremacists. Somehow in their minds, that justifies violence against them. They believe they can justify violence against what, bad people, I guess. On Twitter, user frogperson tweeted, quote, every cop a murderer, every judge an accomplice. End quote. We see ACAB spray painted everywhere these criminals have been. By now, I'm pretty sure you know what ACAB means. If not, I'm not saying it on here, so go look it up. These lies are used to dehumanize law enforcement thereby justifying attacks on them. The purpose of these attacks is not to stop cops from murdering, as they're accused of doing, but to destabilize society to the point where a violent Marxist revolution can succeed. The lead organizers of BLM are open and avowed Marxist revolutionaries, and BLM spokespeople have been calling for and threatening revolution for months now. The idea that a revolution is a bridge too far is false hope. Uh, They also target white privilege— White privilege is a lie used to dehumanize white people by claiming an unfair advantage, thereby justifying violence against them. The lie is that white people have an unfair advantage and that there's nothing wrong with forcibly evening the supposedly uneven playing field. What do these justifications have in common? Someone wants something that either is not theirs or they know is morally wrong. They need an excuse to take what they want by force, so they accuse the target of something that makes them a bad person. If they're a bad person, then it's okay to forcibly take what they want, because being a bad person makes them less than human. If the target is less than human, and the aggressor is human, then the aggressor is superior and justified in taking what they want. This scheme is hardly new. It's been used to justify all the worst atrocities in recorded history. It takes on new form each time, but it does the exact same thing for the exact same reason. It was used by the Romans to justify enslaving the barbarians. It was used by the Spanish to justify enslaving the natives of Central and South America. It was used by Jackson's Democrats to justify killing Native Americans and driving them from their land. They were inferior, and they were uncivilized, right? It was used by the all-Democrat slave class to justify enslaving blacks. To them, blacks were mere farm animals. It was used by the Nazis to justify the extermination of the infirm, the mentally ill, homosexuals, gypsies, and Jews. They were literally untermenschen, subhuman. They were considered rats. I don't mean that metaphorically. They actually considered them rats. And rats can be exterminated without conscience. More recently, it was used by the Hutus to exterminate the Tutsis in Rwanda. To the Hutus, the Tutsis were not rats. They were cockroaches. This process of dehumanization is also used to make it easier to harm other people. Generally speaking, we have a natural aversion to harming and especially to killing other people. In his book On Killing, Lieutenant Grossman talks about the steps that militaries take to get their soldiers to kill the enemy. It's not easy. The very first is dehumanization. Every enemy has an alternate name and in cases of interracial war, a slur. The slurs I'm not going to repeat here, but we're largely familiar with the alternate names, like German Jerry, English Tom, Vietnamese Charlie. When we don't look at people as people, but as others, it becomes much easier to come to terms with causing them harm. There's a difference between a moral wrong and a punishable offense. Even if the mob did identify a true dyed-in-the-wool racist, They would not be justified in attacking or punishing that person. Without due process, how do we avoid the inevitable mistakes? Without dissenting opinions, how do we ever come up with anything new? How do we ever recognize when we're the ones who are wrong? It's a witch hunt. You accuse someone of being a witch. You put the burden of proof on the defendant. Then you ensure that either the defense is impossibly narrowed or that the sentence is carried out before they can protest. Why? because you want something that they have. Put BLM in your window, or you're a witch. Raise your fist, or you're a witch. Come out of your homes and join us, or you're a witch. Vote for our candidate, or you're a witch. Burn the witches. We know that identity politics played by the left is a lie, because their militant arm, Antifa BLM, regularly uses homophobic slurs to justify attacking people they've targeted. Every time someone feels the need to otherize someone, that is a sure sign that they're trying to convince themselves that it's okay to do something they know is wrong. The parent who defends their home has no reason not to recognize the humanity of their assailant. The business owner who defends their business has no reason not to recognize the humanity of the arsonist. The police officer who enforces the law against a rioter has no reason not to recognize the humanity of the alleged criminal. In these types of cases, there is no need to invent a justification. The justification is plainly evident. There is no reason to dehumanize the assailant. One can fully accept the humanity of a violent criminal without subjecting themselves to the crime. There's a reason firearms instructors don't teach people to shoot to kill. They teach people to shoot to stop. It's not the person we want to end. It's the harm from the crime. In the case of rioters of Antifa BLM, that's not what we're looking at. They don't have legitimate reasons to break windows, to spray paint and graffiti, to attack people and put them in the hospital, and in some cases to shoot people. They don't have a legitimate justification, but they are things that they want to do, and so they have to come up with, no matter how flimsy it is, They have to come up with a justification. You're a racist. You're a white supremacist. They don't even need evidence. You don't need evidence in a witch hunt. The current unrest is very likely to continue to escalate. Politicians on the left have been signaling for weeks that they intend to take power after the election, regardless of the ballot results. The words revolution and radicalize have been used frequently, and the seeds of doubt and fear for this election have been sown deep. We can't control how the left will respond to events as they unfold. One thing we can do is prevent ourselves from otherizing and dehumanizing them as this all plays out. We can defend our families, our rights, our homes, our religions, and the republic without viewing or treating those who threaten us as subhuman. I think our resolve to that point is going to be tested sooner than we realize. But we do have to pass that test. We cannot stoop to that level. There's a CBS article out of Minneapolis I want to share with you. Let me bring it up here real quick. This comes out of Minneapolis. It's titled, Minneapolis Police 3rd Precinct Head to Business Owner. Reinforcements aren't coming anytime soon. And this is pretty scary stuff, because this is where this all goes. There was a business owner who emailed the head of the Minneapolis Police Department's 3rd Precinct. They were talking about robberies that have happened in the area, some break-ins. Um, there's one incident here. Let me read it for you. So this is from CBS Minnesota. This is an article by Jennifer Milery. I hope I pronounced that correctly. I at least want to give them credit where credit is due, because this is a very good article. So I'll start here. Surveillance video shows a group accused of robbing Chad Stamps' wife inside her gift shop during the lunch hour earlier this month. Quote, they stole our car, stole our wallet, checkbook, everything, end quote. Stamps said one of the suspects punched someone trying to help her. There's a window broken at Town Hall Tap. Someone opened fire inside the Pizza Hut. The employee who was there has now quit, and a car flying down the street crashed into a bus and business. Russell Herbruski lives and works nearby, quote, I'm scared for my coworkers, end quote. Here's another part. A nearby business relayed a similar message to the inspector of the third precinct via email, also sharing it's hard to find employees who want to work in the area. And they are asking for, oh, and they're asking for a long term plan. So people in the area now, this is actually a couple of people now who are saying, what's the long term plan? What, how are we going to get ourselves out of this thing? Uh, because things keep getting worse. If you remember, Minneapolis is one of the cities that has decided to defund the police. So they cut their budget dramatically. They've lost a lot of officers. And with them with being hamstrung, there were a lot of officers in Minneapolis that already up and quit. They said, we're out of here. I'm going to go do something else. You know, this is too dangerous. There's no support. We're done with this. The very first line in this whole article, there's no long-term plan. And reinforcements aren't coming anytime soon. Right? That's where this goes. Here is—back to the article. Here's the response they received from Inspector Sean McGinty. Quote, As far as a long-term plan, I don't have one. I've lost 30% of my street officers since the end of May. Budget cuts from COVID-19 and an additional $1.5 million from the council in August. We have let go 17 CSOs—I'm pretty sure that means community service officers— And canceled a recruit class of 29. A potential cadet class slated for January of 2021 was also eliminated. Now, this is the important part. This is where it gets really kind of scary. It takes about a year to get a police officer onto the streets with hiring, backgrounds, and field training. So reinforcements aren't coming anytime soon. We are doing everything we can with what we have. That's where they're at. And this isn't just Minneapolis. There are a lot of cities that are defunding their police, cutting their budgets, hamstringing them with rules of engagement. It's becoming a serious mess. And a lot of people seem to be of the opinion of, well, it's not coming to my neighborhood. It's not not coming to me. But if we've learned anything from history, it's that things this big eventually reach everyone. This is snowballing. Your police department may not be defunded, but the effects of this are going to reach everywhere. And the worst thing that we can do is go, oh, well, that's not here. That's not affecting me. So I don't need to worry about it. I don't need to do anything. I can just ignore this and go about my business. Let me go ahead and get back over to this article because there's actually more. So Stamps, um, the husband of the woman who was attacked in her business. Quote, it does erode the confidence in the neighborhood of people, of the people, and being able to feel safe coming down here. This is not the first time that their store was hit. Nothing changed before, here's another quote from him, nothing changed before, and nothing's changed now, except that these criminals have gotten more emboldened about doing this. As the unrest spreads, this, all of this will spread. As more cops leave the force because it's just too dangerous to do the job, because they're being targeted by rioters and murderers, uh, because they're being targeted by prosecutors, criminals are being emboldened, and crime's going to get a lot worse. That's the point. That's what they're going for. People are afraid to go back to work. They're afraid to go to the store. They're afraid to go to their favorite restaurant. People who have been affected by this don't feel safe in their homes. There are a lot of places where these riots have gone to the neighborhoods, they've gone onto to people's properties, they've spray-painted the front of their house, knocked on their windows, climbed on their roofs, they don't feel safe in their homes, they don't feel safe in their jobs, their jobs and businesses are being destroyed, they're being burned to the ground, and the institutions that were put in place to maintain order are being hamstrung. This is the breakdown of civil society. It's happening in cities all across the U.S., And it's a trend that's gaining momentum. It's not a passing issue. Now, does this mean that it's going to end up everywhere? Are there going to be riots in every little town everywhere? No, of course not. But one thing we have to be very careful of is that we don't assume that this is just going to blow over. This is gaining momentum. It has the support of mainstream media. Mainstream media is covering for them. Politicians are covering for them and supporting them. I mean, shoot, Kamala Harris's campaign was used to fundraise to bail violent rioters out of jail. The more of this that happens, the more we're going to see things like truckers refusing to deliver to certain cities. That's already happening. And if you live in one of those cities, it's definitely affecting you. That's a big deal. right? If you look at our civil war back in the 1800s, it's kind of unique in a lot of ways. Most civil wars are fighting neighbor against neighbor, town against town, all, you know, all scattered, all within all the same area. It's a bit of a mess. It's usually not as clear cut as north against south. There's a photo in the Gateway Pundit from just last night in San Diego. There's a mother out to dinner with friends. And in this photo, she's clutching her baby, terrified, terrified as BLM rioters harass all the restaurant patrons. There's another article of a man reportedly wearing a Justice for Breonna Taylor shirt that killed three people in a small local bar in Louisville. Do you think any of these people are going out to eat anytime soon? Do you think that the woman who was backed into a corner by an entire crowd, dozens of people, screaming at her to raise the BLM fist, do you think that any of these people are going to go out and patron businesses and put themselves at risk anytime soon? Do you think their families and their friends and the people who know them through social media and see this story and it actually hits home because they say, wow, if it can happen to her or them, it can happen to me. Those are real people. Those are people that I know. This isn't just somebody on the news that I've never heard of. This is somebody I know. Wow, this is real. And now you've got a large number of people every time one of these things happens, who are no longer going to go out and expose themselves to that kind of risk. When when people are afraid to live, society breaks down. I mean, during the George Floyd riots, here's a great example. This is one of the scariest things I think I've, I've seen out of this whole thing. There's a man who tweeted from New York City that someone was breaking in. This is after the fact. Um, someone had been breaking in. He called 911. The dispatcher told him that the city was burning there was no one left to respond, and I believe the quote that came out of that was something like, the city is burning, what would you have us do? Something tells me this was not an isolated incident either. There have been calls going out for a counterattack. We're not there, and heaven help us if we get there. Okay, right now, pushback comes from strengthening constitutional law and order. We need effective law enforcement we need due process, we need to follow constitutional law, and the laws that we've put in place. One of the major problems that we've been running into with these riots is that the law has not been enforced properly. It's not that the laws aren't there, it's not that the system isn't there, it's that it's not being utilized. It's no surprise that the worst of the riots have taken place where law enforcement are hamstrung by politicians. Cities that won't allow the police to do their job, who decree unreasonable rules of engagement and who refuse to prosecute criminals, are breeding this. Sacramento was an interesting case study. Watched some riots that happened, I think right after Kenosha. And the first night, the first night, there were several reporters that were covering with live streams. And so we got a real good view of exactly what was going on. The Capitol building was guarded by an army of highway patrol officers. Nothing was going to happen there. The sheriff deployed in force everywhere he had jurisdiction with a zero-tolerance policy. Sacramento PD were posted to guard City Hall and a small handful of other important city buildings, but they were not out in the streets. They did not interfere at all with the destruction of businesses along the path of the riot. They just let it go. And there were windows smashed. Somebody started a fire in the lobby of um, the—I think it was the district attorney's office— There was a Starbucks that got smashed up real good. Sacramento PD were posted to guard City Hall and a small handful of other important city buildings, but did not interfere at all with the destruction of businesses along the path of the riot. They didn't engage. They didn't prevent anything. They didn't arrest anyone who was attacking businesses and destroying property. They stood their ground on city property, where I'm assuming they were ordered, and they let the rioters do what they were going to do. The Capitol was unscathed. County jurisdiction was not violated, but the city's businesses were thrashed. Public sentiment and pressure has a significant impact on local decision-making. So does civic engagement. It wasn't the president or Congress that hamstrung Seattle PD. It was local elected officials. It isn't federal prosecutors who have been jailing people for defending their homes or trying to earn a living. That's been locally elected district attorneys. If we want pushback, We need to pay close attention to who we're electing, especially at the local level. And that we're actually voting. It's staggering how many people don't bother. I firmly believe that uninformed people shouldn't vote. But I also believe that everyone should vote. So you do the math. From all available information, this election is just about guaranteed to open a constitutional crisis of one form or another the Democrats have already stated on multiple occasions that they won't accept defeat under any circumstances. There's a good chance the Republicans won't accept a loss if there's evidence of significant voter fraud. BLM seems poised to take to the streets the moment there's any question about the results. They've been unmistakably clear that they'll accept nothing short of a Marxist revolution, and they think that they can bend Biden to their aims, and that Trump is not an option. There's no way they're going to get Trump to go along with a Marxist revolution. All right, that's what I got for you this week. I'll see you again next week, same time, same channel. My goal with this podcast is to bring you a variety of angles on what I guess we can call the unrest, for lack of a better term right now. Some of it will be deep dives into big news events. I've been working on putting together all the pieces on the Kyle Rittenhouse shooting. There's a lot to that story. Uh, Some of it will be like today, breaking down some of the concepts that are important to understanding those big news events. I'm really hoping that at the end of this, you have a better idea of where these leftist rioters are coming from, why they're accusing people of being racists who are clearly not racists, why they're going after people and saying that they are white supremacists or or people on the left are accusing people of color of internalized whiteness. So... Hopefully that makes a little bit more sense to you. Um, in the future, if I can swing it, I'm also going to bring on some guests, maybe even a live stream or two. And I think I'm going to call it there for today. So for now, be informed, stay safe, don't do anything stupid.